Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. The Ostrich Paradox by Robert Meyer and Howard Kunrather. Talk about why we underprepare for disasters. Why we as individuals and organizations and really societies fail to get ready for what we know is definitely going to happen. They tell a story in the beginning of this book about a flight by uh, Air France in 2009 where 228 people died. And all that happened when they looked at the the flight recorder, the the black box, was that the co-pilot, who was somewhat inexperienced, and I should say inexperienced compared to, you know, the, the, the senior pilot, I suppose, he noticed one of the gauges went wrong something something lit up and he reacted he pulled the the nose of the plane upwards which caused it to then uh, start to lose altitude and for a solid five minutes they couldn't figure out what was wrong because none of them had ever been in a situation where uh, a perfectly functioning airplane began to lose altitude and, and unfortunately the plane crashed and 228 people died and what they talk about in this book, The Ostrich Paradox, is the way that the brain works in when disaster is pending or when disaster is uh, on the horizon. So pending being, you know, it's imminent, it's, it's about to happen, or when it's, you know, at some vague distant point in the future. Um, one of the things they refer to in this book is the, the two systems in Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. If you've ever read that book, I think he won a, a Nobel, Nobel Prize for, uh, for psychology or something, yeah, something very clever anyway. And he taught in, in the other book, in, in, in Thinking Fast and Slow, he talks about there being two systems uh, in your brain. And the first system is automated and instinctive. And the example, the, the famous example I've heard many times is that you see a stick and you think it's a snake. You don't spend time analyzing, is it a snake or not? You, you immediately jump out of the way or your, your adrenaline starts to flow immediately. It's that fight or flight kind of mode. And the second thing then, the second system is for controlled thoughts. So where a decision about, you know, if to take the snake example, if you were to get a snake bite, you'd need to think through what the decision would be to, to handle that. How would you actually, you know, figure that out? Generally, how it works is that the, the two systems, the, the thinking fast and slow, they work in concert, usually. So say, for example, if you're driving to work, uh, there's you know a thousand decisions that have to be made about changing gear, indicators, moving the wheel, glancing you know, at pedestrians, all those kinds of things that we know about when we're driving a car. What they, they, they use this as an example because generally those things are handled by system one. Right, the instinctive system where you just it, it just happens. All these decisions are kind of made on autopilot almost, until you get to a truck that's broken down in the middle of the road. And now what happens is your system two kicks in. And now I need to make a decision. This is out of the ordinary. And now I need to have a controlled thought about what to do. Indicate move out of that lane, move around the truck. Obviously rubberneck at the broken down truck. Everyone has to rubberneck. But the whole point is that there's two systems that are generally working in concert together. And then once you've moved past that broken down truck in the middle of the road you're back into system one and you're thinking about what you're going to say in, in the in your in your morning meeting or whatever it is right you're, you're back to um letting system one take over driving this car so in that air france story from 2009 where 228 people died what the pilot should have done was pitched the nose of the plane 
downwards. But he didn't. He pitched it upwards. Now, there's no nobody knows why he did that. Um, the, the, it would have been a very simple thing to just pitch it downwards and the plane would have maintained its altitude and um, uh, you assume things would have been fine. I don't know much about it, but I neither do the authors. But what they're saying is that when pilots are trained in simulators and for you know things going wrong, they're trained not to think, they're trained to react. So if the plane, if there's a dial in the airplane in the cockpit that's telling you that you're losing altitude, even if you're not, your immediate reaction is just to pull up, right? Is to pull the, the nose of the plane up. That's your system one that's kicked in there. So they talk about this, the this system one and system two in this book a lot in the ostrich paradox, and they talk about how sometimes we allow system one to take over things when really we should be allowing system two to do things and vice versa. And they say that there is six biases as to why we underprepare for disasters. And we're going to talk through these six different uh, biases or biases. And we're going to see if we can figure out a way past them. Now, if you're new to a, a leadership, leadership position and you're thinking about how the ostrich paradox could be of use to you, this is how. When we go through these six different biases, what you need to do is you need to just basically accept that you and everyone around you suffers from these or reacts in these ways to situations. If you're the leader in your team, especially if you're new to leadership, what you need to do is you need to make sure that you're auditing these six biases, both in yourself and in your team and in the wider organization. You're not going to be able to impact the rest of the organization. All you can ever do as a leader in a team is to control what you can control, is to control your teams, to control the output of your of your tasks, of your projects, whatever it is that you're doing. So the six biases, I'll go through them, I'll, just, I'll, I'll list them out and then we'll go through them all. And uh, we'll talk about how you could actually go about auditing each one. If you're given a task to complete, a project to complete, is it worth writing these six biases down and say, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that we prepare without over-preparing? Uh, for a, a particular disaster that might actually happen while we're completing this project. Everything that we do at Use Because is about making sure that people who are in leadership roles want to uh, improve and all the time have their head on, this, on a swivel, really, to make sure that they're auditing and thinking about what they're doing and how they're, how they're, how they're running their teams. And that's ultimately what this book is about as well, even though the, the subtitle of this book is Why We Underprepare under for Disasters. And they're talking about, you know, tsunamis and floods and pandemics, for example, that are on at the moment. Why have we underprepared for these things? So there's lots of different hats, I suppose, you could wear uh, as you're listening to, to, to the content in this episode. You can listen to it from the point of view from COVID-19. Why have we failed to prepare or why have we underprepared for this particular disaster? Then think about your own life, your own kind of smaller ecosystem that you operate in, the team that you're leading, the team that you're thinking about leading if you're new to a leadership role. How could I improve myself as a, as a leader by, by making sure that I prepare appropriately for a disaster, for, for things that could possibly go wrong? Anyway, the six biases are myopia, amnesia, optimism, inertia, simplification and herding. So the first one is myopia, right, where the idea is that, well, let me explain it through through a story that they tell in the book. So in Thailand, they had a system that was from the 1940s that was to alert the authorities about 
an impending tsunami. So if there was an earthquake, that was one thing, but not all earthquakes necessarily cause tsunamis. But you need to know if a tsunami is coming. You've probably got, you know, depending on where the epicenter is of the earthquake, you've probably got between 20 and 20 minutes and, and 30 minutes for uh, to make a decision and to alert your your populace or your, your people that there is a big old wave on its way and you better get out of the way. So in 1998, there was a guy in charge of uh, this particular uh, siren network, right? This network to, to tell people if the siren was off, well, get to higher ground. And he said, look, we need to up, upgrade this, this network of sirens because it's just not fit for purpose. And the people over him decided that what they would do is they would fire him instead. They would get rid of him because they thought, you know, having these big ugly sirens all around the place. And what if the siren went off? And it was a false alarm. Uh, it'll damage tourism. But then we know what happened in 2004. I think it was Stephen's Day or Boxing Day, depending on the day after Christmas Day, depending on where you live in the world, 26th of December. There was a massive, massive earthquake, 9.3 on the Richter scale. And I think once that happened, it was about 20, 40 minutes later, a huge tsunami hit. And there was 230,000 people dead. Now, they, weren't all, they didn't all die in, in Thailand, but there was a massive um amount of people who died in thailand and were uh, injured and all those you know horrible terrible things but you can kind of see this from both sides of the argument well our system's there since 1940 of course we should upgrade it but then at the same time well we've had it since 1940 and there hasn't been a tsunami so why would we bother and this is what myopia is all about it's kind of like well you know there's a low probability of something happening yeah but there's a high consequence if it does happen. And the same thing happened in uh, 2005 then when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit in New Orleans. There, there was proposals for the levee around New Orleans to be rebuilt since 1965. It had been on the long finger since 1965. And the same thing in 2008 with the Gulf oil spill. Remember that where uh, BP had a uh, pipe in... I can't remember, it was somewhere in the Atlantic maybe? No, it wasn't the Atlantic, it was further south than that, I think. But there was a burst pipe base and there was just millions and millions of barrels of oil just pumping out into the sea. And the whole thing with, with BP was that they, they rewarded short-term gains and not safety. And because of that, then, well, that's what you ended up with was this massive, massive oil spill. So myopia is really about looking at the situation as it is right now and not really kind of looking back into the past not looking at what could happen in the future there's a low probability of something happening but there's a very very high consequence if it does and really myopia is about understanding or 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 allowing yourself to be putting out fires all the time rather than taking a step back and going well what where could 10% of our time go could 10% of our time of our budget of our efforts could it go into you know this low probability but high consequence event that could possibly happen the one i always think about is the people who live in california on the san andreas fault where there is absolutely going to be an earthquake a terrible earthquake but because it's you know earthquakes happen on on a, on a geological time scale where it can happen over thousands of years decade to decade now yeah, there might be a rumble every now and again but sure it, it'll be fine there's a low probability but a high consequence and because of that people go well it hasn't happened today so you know what's the big deal but myopia usually works you see the present is generally more important than the future 
And because of that, people just put their emphasis on, well, you know, this is what we're doing right now. This is what our budget is for the next six months or the next year. Yeah, sure, there might be um, a high consequence, low probability event that'll happen three years, five years from now, but we'll worry about that three years or five years from now. Our most recent podcast that we did was on the power of habit by Charles Duhigg, and we talked about how you kind of have to allow yourself to uh, to counteract the future version of you if you're looking to, to build a new habit. The future version of you is going to be lazy. All the plans you put in place right now the future version of you is going to thwart those plans. They're going to try their best to thwart them. And we talked about, well, you can go back and listen to that one, the, the, the power of habit. But we talked about how you should uh, counteract those things, really. Counteract that myopia. One of the best things I think you can do for any of the six things that we're talking about in this book, The Ostrich Paradox, is to really just be, like I said, have your head on a swivel. Be, be alert. Be understand that they exist and that I'm probably suffering from them. Of course, I'm not suggesting that if you're, if you're new to a leadership position that you should be, uh, you know, your, your, your immediate boss tells you to, to get a project done in the next, you know, two-week sprint. You think, yeah, but what about this particular event that might happen five years from now? And your boss is not going to be that bothered. It's about having, it's about making sure that you have an, one eye on the future so that you are putting at least some amount of effort into uh, counteracting this this low probability, high consequence event that could happen in the future or that will happen in the future. In the book, they talk about something called hyperbolic discounting. And this is a really interesting study that they did. So these two guys, um, this book is, I should say, is uh, it's published by the Wharton School um I think the two guys are, are lecturers or they're at least psychologists anyway, I think. So these guys know what they're talking about in this book. And I, I it's like it's a very, very small book, short book, 104 pages or whatever. Definitely worth a read because it's it's got so many interesting statistics and uh, studies that they did. But anyway, one of the studies that they did was to ask people about this. They kind of they, 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 they phrase this thing, hyperbolic uh, discounting. If I was to offer you $120 now, or $120 in a year, almost all all people who are offered that would take the $100. Now, I'm not going to wait a year for $120. But what was really interesting if they said, well, I'll give you $100 in a year. No, sorry, hang on. I'll give you $100 in a month, or I'll give you $120 in a year and a month from now. So $100 one month from now, or $120 in 13 months from now. And most people were willing to wait then because of this, what they call hyperbolic discounting. It's the, the immediate pain of not getting the $100 now is offset by, I'm, well, I have to wait a month anyway. What's the difference between waiting a month and waiting uh, 13 months? I might as well, I'll, yeah, I'll wait 13 months and you can give me, give me $120 then. And that's what they talk about when it comes to procrastination as well is that, the reason that people procrastinate, or one, I suppose there's lots of reasons why they do, but one of the reasons why people procrastinate is that it's the immediate pain, that myopia of the immediate. All I can think about is the immediate pain. It's like if, if you get told you can uh, insulate your house and it'll save you $10,000, 10,000 euros, 10,000 pounds, whatever it is, you'll, you'll make that money back within five years. Most people go, yeah. Still going to cost me ten grand now, though. 
it's very, very hard for individuals to think about what the savings five years from now. It's one of the things banks are very good at is understanding that they play the long game rather than just kind of looking for their for their money back straight away. It's one of the reasons why they got to uh, the the position they're in, I suppose, of, of running the world. Anyway, that's myopia. Myopia is the first biases that they talk about. The bias that they talk about is that there is there's something to be said for, of course, taking care of the immediate, the things that are in front of you right now. But then you also have to have one eye on the future on those low probability, high consequence events. So like I said, if you're new to a leadership position, if you're in a leadership position, you can't just be putting out fires all the time. You have to make sure that you're preparing for possible disasters or at least being aware when you're not preparing for possible disasters. The second uh, bias then is uh, amnesia. This is a really tragic story how they start this particular section of the book. place in China, I believe, um, um, Mayako, I think it was called, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But in 2011, there was a, a, an earthquake that registered a 9, 9.0 on the Richter scale. And uh, 15 minutes later, there was a 129 foot tsunami uh, and it leveled most of the city, right? So the, the city was built to withstand the earthquake, but not the tsunami that followed. So there was very strict building codes about you know how buildings should be built what they should be made from and so on so they they all survived the earthquake but the 129 foot tsunami that followed leveled nearly the whole place and what was really tragic was that i think it was in like a a a valley uh, right near the sea 100 years previously a tsunami had hit and there were stone markers at the point where the water the, the high point where the water hit the last time saying do not build below this point remember the calamity of the great tsunamis do not build below this point that was the exact quote i think it was in japanese or i think uh, but those things just got forgotten because of this amnesia and it's like now this isn't mentioned in the book but it's like um it's like the horrors of world war ii i think that you know it kind of gets washed out through generations we're getting to a very dangerous point now where these things just get washed out like there's you know in i believe in germany they say you'll never forget just never forget uh what humans are capable of um during this the horrors of world war ii or, or any war really but people do forget this amnesia is a real thing like and that's that story there is that there's there's stone markers saying don't build below this point and people go ah it'll be fine and the reason for this, and they get into the into the, the psychology behind this in the book, the reason why we forget the pain of things is that that's how we learn as humans. It's like learning to ride a bike. If you remember learning to ride a bike, you probably fell off a lot, scratched your knees and your elbows, and you got those uh, that tarmac stuff into your into the palms, of your hands, right? That horrible ugh, pain. But the pain is short lived because you're focused on I want to learn how to ride a bike. And because that is uh, short-lived, you know, you, it allows you to get back up onto the bike again. And really what this is about when they talk about the, the memory for pain being short-lived is they're talking about the objective memory, say, for example, of falling off your bike. The objective memory doesn't disappear. You still remember falling off your bike, but the emotional drivers, they fade. I mean, if you think about the shock of the... The 9-11 attacks in New York, the shock passes, 
the memory doesn't pass the objective memory of it doesn't pass and when you think back to where you were when, when, when those planes hit those buildings like i remember where i was i was in chicago when that happened and i remember the shock of it but i'm not shocked now i don't still have those emotional drivers i remember feeling very emotional at the time but i don't feel that emotion now the objective memory remains and that happens to everyone that the the emotional drivers of these things begin to fade over time and that's what that amnesia is and again it comes back to sometimes human nature doesn't work in our favor uh, we shouldn't forget the emotional drivers of those things but it's just nature that we do because our life continues things go on and uh, it's like if something terrible happens in your own life that you know somebody close to you passes away or something you, you don't ever forget it you don't ever get over it but you do you do continue with your life the uh, the objective memory of it remains but you're not uh, eventually grief fades in well for some people it does not for everyone i suppose but you would do eventually get back to some version of living um, and that's because that that kind of protects your brain as well but when it comes to something like you know building uh building a city where a tsunami is likely to hit it doesn't work in our favor they tell a story as well about the hurricanes that were approaching north carolina back in 2010 and 2011 and only 55% of the people who live there put up protection so they'd put up plywood over the windows and do whatever else they need to do to protect themselves from hurricanes and, and this terrible bad weather and the reason that only 55% of the people put it up and you know nearly half the people didn't was the hassle because many times before they'd been given hurricane warnings and the hurricane never hit. The hurricane changed direction. And what they do is they remember the, the pain of having to put the stuff up. And think, ah, I can't be bothered to do it again. The next bias then is called optimism, right? This perception of risk, this cocktail of objective fact, subjective feelings and emotions. You see, when it comes to optimism, a lot of the time people fail to prepare for disasters or they underprepare for disasters because they think it's not going to happen to me that kind of thing happens to other people so if you as a leader of a team if you're being overly optimistic of course optimism is important but if you're being overly optimistic then you're probably doing a disservice you should always protect the downside always protect against uh anything anything you think is possible any, even the remote things that might happen you have to think about well what should, what could i protect against here what 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 are the the possible downsides of, of the things that could happen and when it comes to optimism as well and when it comes to understanding why we can sometimes be so optimistic it comes down to our our lack of understanding of probability if we take a guess about something we base it only on our own experiences on what they call availability bias there's no data available to allow us to imagine it happening happening to us so intuition fails us i've never been in a plane crash before so i get on airplanes those kinds of things that kind of optimism is a useful thing to have but sometimes it can work against us because we can be overly optimistic because well you know they, they say a hurricane's going to hit but no well, i don't know didn't hit last year like the, the two things are not related so sometimes that kind of intuition can fail us and as well like the they also they, they talk about uh about 9-11 again that as we all remember flights nobody would get on an airplane for weeks and months afterwards 
but lots of people get into cars. And if you're not on about probability, you have a much higher chance of dying in a car crash than you do in a plane crash. So these kind of things that this, it kind of like, it's almost like the, the flip side of optimism, not necessarily pessimism, but they're optimistic about the wrong things there. I'm not going to fly because flying is clearly dangerous. So I'm going to take my car, which is actually mathematically much more dangerous than, than, uh, than flying in an airplane statistically. So sometimes this excessive optimism can come from uh, the availability bias. Most of the time it happens to other people and that's, that's the available information to me. And I look around at, you know, car crashes that happen or, uh, you know, you know I mean, and take it, take it back to a business level where, you know, somebody loses a sale at the last minute, that kind of thing. That usually happens to other people. Like it does, that generally doesn't happen. The second reason for excessive optimism is that we construct mental images of what we hope will happen. And they call that in the book motivated reasoning. So we push away the images of the bad things. It's like going to do a presentation. Uh, sometimes people, one of the reasons they're able to get up on stage is because they, they, they visualize all the positive things happening, not all the negative things happening. And I guess that's why people live in California, live on the San Andreas fault line. Uh, like an earthquake is definitely going to happen there. It's going to be devastating. It might not happen for a thousand years, but it, it'll, it will happen. It's one of those low probability, high, conse high consequence events. They give an analogy, I suppose, or like a, a metaphor, I suppose, whatever you want to call it in the book. They say, imagine if you woke up one day and uh, the tree beside your house looked like it was starting to get kind of big and it was starting to lean towards your house and you know, it gets up taller than the roof. In your head, you'll say, I need to cut that tree back but you don't need to do it right now. It's not gonna, it, it could very easily fall today, but it probably won't. It didn't fall yesterday. hasn't fallen in the last 10 years. At some point it will fall and you will have to take care of it. I'm just not going to do it today. And that's where that procrastination comes in as well. It's not even procrastination. It's more about just pushing the decision to do something further down the line. So there's three main biases when it comes, like almost like sub-biases, if you like, of the optimism uh, bias is that there's the availability bias just I can't imagine it happening it just hasn't happened to me and uh, the optimism bias bias is that it happens to other people and the compounding bias so it's not happening today that's like the tree not falling on your house well it hasn't happened today so chances are it won't happen tomorrow or the next day but it'll, it'll happen at some vague point in the future the next bias that I talk about then is inertia that's basically that we will stick to what we've always done and that frees us up from any difficult thinking. That frees us up from having to use our system too, that they talk about in the other book, uh, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. That, that difficult thinking is not something that we want to engage with. Naturally, we don't lean towards that because it's, uh, you know, I guess it's to do with survival or something, some caveman thing where don't use resources unnecessarily. So inertia it kind of gives us an easy escape hatch. It gives us in a way a way to just, well, we'll just stick with what we've always done. We'll just keep going in this direction. We'll stick with the defaults. And a really interesting one to give about the defaults is organ donation. If you have a donor card or if the donor card is connected to your driving license, as it is in a lot of countries, the difference between the driving license uh, donor cards that have opt-in versus opt-out people just stick to whatever the default is. Like if the default in your country is that you have to opt out, that means that if you were to die in, in a crash or to get seriously injured in a crash, you'd no chance of survival. 
if you didn't opt out, they have the right then to go and harvest your organs. Whereas if, if it's the opposite way around and you need to opt in, the majority of people don't opt in. You just think, ah, oh, I'll just stick it, whatever. You know, they just don't bother. And that's what that inertia is. So it's one of the most dangerous things you'll ever hear in a team is that's just the way we've always done it. If you've ever heard that, that should be a massive red flag. That's just the way we've always done it. That's inertia. And it's something for you to kind of scribble down a note on and go, well, is that, are we protecting ourselves against a disaster here um, for what I can control in this team? And inertia as well ties into, actually, again, the, the power of habit. We take lunch at the same time. We generally eat the same four or five meals every week. We have a morning routine. We have a, we have a routine for our entire lives because it's, it's, it's to do with that inertia. It's to do with that wanting to not necessarily involve the system too, right? We want to just use system one and just kind of coast along and use our brain power for things that are actually of value to us or of interest to us. It's why Mark Zuckerberg wears the same clothes all the time. It just removes any thinking about those kinds of things. So with inertia, investment in protection, it'll never be a default. We'll never default towards investing in in protecting against that low uh, low probability high consequence event but the superstars will the superstars will give three five percent of their energy their time and uh, their budget towards something that might happen in the future that rainy day fund as it were the next thing they talk about then the next bias is uh, simplification this is a really dangerous one i think they talk about single action bias now my wife could probably accuse me of this, that I am great at starting jobs around the house, not necessarily great at finishing them. Think about this. Think about if you're in one of those places that is uh, prone to hurricanes or tornadoes. And, you know, every couple of months, the, the, the news says, OK, there's a hurricane coming. Uh, you need to do something to prepare. The single action bias could be something like. Let's say it was hurricanes where your windows could get smashed in through, um, you know, debris and that kind of thing. So the, the action you would need to take would be to buy plywood, cut it to shape, put it on top of your windows for it to protect your windows, that kind of thing. The single action bias would be just to buy the, the plywood. Think, oh, I've, I've that's a massive action. I've done it now. That's they, You're simplifying the task down into just one thing that I need to do. Now I've done one thing now. That's, that's enough. Whereas a lot of the time with impending disasters there's there's lots of small steps that need to be taken or lots of even big steps that need to be taken that it can't just be about taking the first step or simplifying it down into like two or three steps and really there's 10 or 12 steps to be taken you know what it's like it's like buying toilet paper in a pandemic like as if that's really going to help when the shit oh maybe i will actually <laughs> when the shit hits the fan maybe the toilet paper is what you want but that's what people do is that they they take a step that they think is going to help. Now, if you imagine if the pandemic turned into um, impacting our, our food supply, our supply chains, uh, or forgot it, if the, if the virus itself got into our, into our food supply, how quickly would things devolve in society? It'd be pretty quickly, right? Toilet paper would not be high on the agenda. And yet toilet paper was cleared out across the world toilet paper and flour right everyone is at home baking now as well but it's it people just just they simplified into well i've i've got i've got toilet paper now and i've got tins of tomatoes that's i'm i'm set now i i'm, I'm okay 
they've simplified this disaster into a couple of steps, a couple of single action uh, steps, if you like, and they kind of console themselves that that's enough, right? And that kind of leads into the last thing that they talk about then, which is herding. And this is like, you know, if you're in a cinema and, and a fire breaks out, you know, everyone knows they're supposed to go down the steps and head towards the exit in a calm manner. But when there's a herd mentality, people just look to anyone who's, what's everyone else doing? I'm just going to do what they're doing and run. It's like uh, the anti-vaxxers, right, who are quite, fairly quiet these days with the COVID-19 um, knocking around. Anti-vaxxers haven't got much to say. But back in the day, uh, this is how herd mentality happens, where uh, the whooping cough was almost eradicated and then it came back because uh, there was there was documentaries made that were not necessarily uh, based in, in science. Uh, people stopped giving their kids uh, the vaccine. What whooping cough made it made a comeback. Uh, same with polio. Um, same with other things as well. And it's because the parents are not vaccinating the kids. Uh, that's that's to do with just doing what everyone else is doing. That herd mentality. It's like if um, you know the fire alarm goes off at work, and people go, "Oh, for God's sake." They don't, they don't react the way they're supposed to because if everyone else got up and panicked and screamed, you'd probably get up and panic and scream as well. So looking there, of course, there is wisdom in crowds, right? You should, you should, uh, there's safety in numbers a lot of the time, but you have to be aware that if you're just doing it just because that's what everyone else is doing, that's not enough. That's not a good enough reason to do something. Uh, when it comes to, to herding as well, this bias that they talk about in this book, the, uh, herding is kind of ties into rapport which we've talked about before as well that people will do what people like them are doing so if there's somebody who is who you see yourself equal to or somebody who you want to be like you'll do what they do right, when it comes to, to that herd mentality so in that book right that's that's the the six biases as they talk about in the book myopia uh, amnesia, optimism, inertia, simplification, and herding. I believe that the best way for you to overcome these things as a new leader, as a person in, in a leadership position, is to firstly, be aware of them. Be aware that they exist. Secondly, think about how to counteract them. So audit yourself when it comes to either running uh, a sprint project or when it comes to... Um, just how you run your team, your weekly team meetings, right? It does. It doesn't have to be always about tsunamis and hurricanes and uh, you know terrible terrorist attacks. The, these biases exist at every level, both individual, organization, and societal. So you have to firstly be aware that they exist, uh, do an audit, right, of of how these impact on beliefs, right, on the things that you believe to be true. And how does each impact the specific hazard that you could possibly be approaching? So if there is a disaster approaching in the in the near or, or, uh, or distant future, how are these six biases and your reaction to them, your beliefs about them, how are they making you act? And is there a way for you to design remedies or a suite of incentives to help you and your team overcome the herd mentality or the, uh, the over-optimistic approach you're taking? that kind of thing. So that's it for this episode of youthbecause.com podcast. 
This podcast was about the ostrich paradox by Robert Meyer. That's M-E-Y-E-R. So you spell his surname. And Howard Kunruther. I'll spell that one. K-U-N-R-E-U-T-H-E-R. The ostrich paradox. Why we underprepare for disasters. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Hey, before you go, just a quick message about usebecause.com and what we're all about. If you want to get more and go deeper, head over to usebecause.com to get your content served three different ways. Firstly, our courses. We take the content from books just like the one in this episode and teach it to you through a suite of bespoke e-learning tools that ensure you understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. It's a way to measure your soft skills. So head over to usebecause.com and click on the courses page. Secondly, more podcast episodes. Usually, it's one episode a week covering the actionable content from a non-fiction book. You can find all these episodes at usebecause.com forward slash podcast. Finally, our blog, where we write about some of these books and some of our own learnings about the world and how it works. And there at usebecause.com forward slash blog. If you enjoy this content and you can think of anyone else who might also enjoy it, please just let them know because we want to teach as many people as we can. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram or sign up for our newsletter. So until next time.